great to see you. I'm going to level with you. You look like you've been needing to get out of the house. I'm just going to say. <laughs> Some cabin fever looking people up in the, up in the Intermountain West here. Hey, guys, so great to be with you again. So great to have you in this room. We have been, if you don't know this, we have been in a series called God of All Grace. We're actually continuing that series today, but we're going to take just a little detour, a little excursus. And uh, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 14. So if you have your Bible... You can turn to Matthew chapter 14. We have been sitting under the teaching and the wisdom and the instruction of the Apostle Peter, who wrote the book, First Peter. And today, I don't know why, but I just kind of felt like God was leading me. I wrote like three, I'm not kidding when I say I wrote three sermons this week, and this is the third one. And the other two I had to scrap because they just weren't doing it for me. But this one... Uh, as I talked with Carrie, uh, we took a couple of days, got out of town, and just, we just chatted about what does our world need, what does our country need right now. So I decided to look at a story, that we would look this morning at a story about Peter. It's about Peter, so we can look at the character and the faith of the man that Jesus was building whose teaching we have been setting under. So we're going to look at that story, and he's going to give us the faith we need. He's going to give us the faith we need for the coming days because we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, this is weird. Like, this is great to have everyone back, but just all the spacing and the masks and the traffic patterns and the hand sanitizer, all of it is just kind of foreign to us right now, and we're not out of the woods yet. And so God has called us as the people of God to lead the way, lead the way in prayer, lead the way in mourning for our nation, and lead the way in instructing them and showing them how it's done. And I think Peter's going to give us the faith we need. He's going to give us a game plan. So if you look at this passage with me, it's in Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, as he would often do. And then later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost! They said, and cried out in fear, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, then tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, that is the wind whipping up the waves against him, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. So I want to give you six points today, just six waypoints where we can understand the kind of faith that you and I are going to need as Peter demonstrates it in the text today. The first one is this, uh, the disciples are right in the middle of God's wonderful plan for their life. Now, when I was in the, a kid in the 70s, in the 80s, how many of you guys remember the little orange or yellow track called the Four Spiritual Laws? You remember that? Have you guys seen those? There was a guy in our church, his name was Calvin, Calvin Walker, and I think he's dead now, 
And Calvin Walker would go around handing everyone that track. I probably had like 20 of those tracks that he gave me over the years. And when I was a little kid growing up in my Southern Baptist church in Goochland, Virginia, uh, Calvin would leave those things everywhere. He'd leave them in the bathroom. And I was a very... uh, I was a very disobedient little kid, a church kid, so I would often be found in a desk or in a chair out in the hallway, and he was the hallway police. So he would come by as the hallway monitor, and he would say, Ah, little Jeffrey, have you heard the four spiritual laws? He gave it to everyone. I don't know how many thousands of those tracts he gave out, but here's the first law in the four spiritual laws. The first law is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And what we learn from this story is that when you're in the middle of the storm, you're still in the middle of God's wonderful plan for your life. And I have to tell you that as, as soon as I decided to follow Jesus and to, and to be his disciple and to pattern my life after the teachings of Jesus, I want to tell you over the last 35 years, whatever, I have had a wonderful life. God, it turns out, had a wonderful plan for my life. So much better than any plan I could have come up with. I would have wrecked this life without Jesus. I would have ruined myself without Jesus. I want to tell you, it's been a wonderful life. But it hasn't been free of trials. And it hasn't been free of tests. Look at verse 22 again. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples. He compelled them. He told them, you get into the boat and go ahead, go on ahead of me to the other side. And so he is the one who has sent them out into the middle of this lake. Do you think Jesus doesn't know what's going on? Oh, I assure you he does. And I will tell you this, that every trial and every test and everything that I have faced in my life, it has all been part of the plan. Even the things that I have brought on myself, even the tests that that were not necessarily directed by God, but the ones I found myself in the middle of because I disobeyed the Lord. God has had a plan and he has a plan for you too. He has a plan for you too. And just because you find yourself in a tough spot today does not mean that you are not in God's will. It does not mean that you are out of the plan. God has a plan for you, a purpose. And that's true for you, and that's also true for our nation. Do you think for one second that God has taken his hands off the wheel? Nope. (laughs) He's still running the show. Things look like they're just kind of crumbling under our feet. They look like they're circling the drain. But I'm telling you, God is still sovereign. He is the gracious, generous, loving, merciful, compassionate God. Everything that that Daniel just read, the whole Westminster Confession. Thank you, Daniel. (laughs) And all of that is true about God. But here is what we need to remember. God is the sovereign Lord. He is is guiding the unfolding of the nations. He really is. And Jesus is the one who has sent these disciples on this journey. And Jesus can see that strong forces are against them. Strong forces, strong headwinds are against them, but they are right in the middle of a mess. And Jesus has known about it. Number two, nobody walks on water without getting drenched. You can't, look, this, the text doesn't say this, but this surely is in the text. It's a subtext, <laughs> right? It is. You, if you want to walk on water, you're going to get wet. You're going to experience the storm. No one who wants to follow Jesus into the unknown, no one wants to, who wants to follow Jesus into the impossible will come out on the other side completely unscathed or untouched by trials. It's not possible. The first day I showed up for football camp when I was a little kid, my friend Jeremy told me how fun football was at school. 
And I decided, and it sounded like the funnest thing you could ever do. And that's all I thought about. That's all I dreamed about. That's all, that's all I could think about was, was playing football. And so that next year, I signed up. And I went to play Little League football. And all the pads were there. And we put our pads on. And the first day I was there... Uh, in, in sort of a pre-season training for little peewees, the first day I was there, I realized two things were true. One, I was the fastest kid on that field. I was a lightning bolt. And two, I had never been hit in full pads before <laughs> until that day. And they asked me, they said, little Jeffrey, that's what they used to call me. Little Jeffrey, which position would you like to try out for? I said, one where you make the touchdowns. They said, okay, you, let's try running back. Sure enough, they gave me the ball, and pfft, like a lightning bolt, I came out of there, and I made touchdowns. And they're like, okay, maybe this is, he'll play this position. But I did not know what I was doing. I had no techniques, no training, and one of the times I was supposed to come through the two-hole, I had the ball, I was holding it like a giant watermelon or an egg, and I was running straight up. Now, what they try to teach you is when you run the ball, you put your head down and you close this gap in here, right? You tuck that ball in there and you close the gap and you run. And I was running straight up and I come through the two hole and my friend Jeremy, who talked me into joining football, <laughs> tackled me and hit me right there with his helmet. Immediately, <laughs> the wind went out of me. I hit my butt. And I dropped the ball, and I couldn't get my breath for like 15 seconds. I was like, you know how a kid, like they lose their air, and they just are trying to suck it in. And finally, I got a gasp of air, and then I started crying. And it wasn't just any cry. It was an angry, miserable, angry cry. And I started, and I tore my helmet off. I threw it on the ground, and I walked over to where my dad was on the sideline. And I said, I'm never playing this sport ever again. I want to go home. And my dad, in his own kind and gentle way, <laughs> got down on one knee. He was not kind and gentle. And he said, boy, you want to play ball? You're going to get hit. Now turn your little rear end around and get back in there. Except he didn't say rear end. I'll let you use your imagination. <laughs> and I did. And I had an illustrious career all the way up to high school. And I will tell you this. I made a lot of touchdowns. And when I became quarterback, I threw a lot of touchdowns. And I handed a lot of touchdowns off. But I will tell you this. I got hit a lot. I got hit a lot. And my dad was right. You want to play the game, you're going to get hit. You want to walk on water, you're going to get wet. And if you want to follow Jesus of Nazareth as a disciple of Jesus, you're going to have a wonderful life. But you also are going to find yourself in situations. I guarantee you when, when this story is done and they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they get out of the boat, they look like a bunch of drenched, drowned rats. I mean, just soaked to the bone, probably freezing, almost hypothermia. But this is the miracle. They have the greatest story to tell in the history of the world that they followed Jesus this way, and they saw Jesus do what he did. You can't play the game without getting hit, and you can't live life without taking risks. The world is beautiful. It's dangerous. It's beautiful, and it's dangerous. Last couple of days, Carrie and I got away. We went to a, a little resort 
Um, they had some really cheap rooms up there, up in Victor, Idaho, because nobody was there. Like, nobody wants to go outside. So we were there, and it felt like it was like us and three other families in this huge resort up there, and they have this, these hiking trails right out of there. Like, you could just leave, get on the trail, and go up into the hills, and it was great, <laughs> and, I was, and I could not wait to do this. All I want to do is hike all day long. That's all I want to do for two days, three days. And I was walking out the door, and the guy at the front desk said, oh, remember your bear spray? And I said, my, my bear what? Said, what are you talking about? Are, are we spraying them now? That's what we're doing. We're spraying the bears. <laughs> he, he said, oh, yeah, and explained it to me. I was like, dang. So I went and I got some bear spray and headed off. And here's the thing. The whole time I was out there, it was gorgeous, perfect, beautiful, and dangerous. And that's all I can think about was how beautiful it was, but how dangerous it is. That's God's world. You want to live in the world, you live in a world where the same fire that can warm you can kill you. The same sunlit beach that can drain the stress out of your bones can also uh, wash over you in a tsunami. <laughs> like this is, a, you take a chance every time you walk out the door, every time you walk out the door, so the faith that he is telling us about today, the faith that, that we are seeing in this story, it's not a crazy, stupid, ridiculous faith. It's not a faith that just takes chances to prove that Jesus is true. It's a faith that is illustrated by him obeying the Lord's command. Go, go across that lake. You are going to the other side. And then a faith that obeys Jesus when he says, yeah, okay, come, come out of the boat. It's a faith that obeys the essence of faith is risk. The essence of Peter's faith was a willingness to believe the impossible, to attempt the unthinkable, and to experience the unimaginable when Jesus says go, and when Jesus says come, come out. Number three, as a disciple, there are times when you feel like Jesus is really, really far away. As a disciple, you are just, there are situations that you're gonna find yourself in, we're gonna find ourselves in where Jesus doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like Jesus is very close or very near. Mark 6 is another version of this story. It's a very interesting version. In Mark chapter 6, verse 47, it says this, later that night the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. Verse 48, he saw the disciples. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them, exhausting themselves against the powerful headwinds Jesus at a distance, up on the mount, looking down on the lake, he can see where they are. And here's what you need to know. He never took his eyes off of them, and he's never taken his eyes off of you. Never. And he never will. He knows exactly where you are. It's no surprise to him. And there are times when you are going to feel like, despite your best efforts, the whole thing is collapsing beneath you. Despite, despite your best try, the best points you made on your Facebook post, or your 140-character Twitter tweet that you send out. There it is. I solved it. <laughs> right? Because that's what people think. They tweet these things, and I, I solved it. And it feels despite your best efforts, despite your greatest pearls of wisdom from the wealth of, of your knowledge, despite that, there are going to be times when it just feels like the world is, going to, is falling apart. It's just coming beneath, coming apart at the seams. And the ground is falling out beneath you. And where is Jesus in all this? Right? Where Jesus is watching. Jesus sees. 
He knows exactly where the disciples are. They are where he thought they would, where he thought they would be. And God sees the headwinds that you and I are fighting against in our culture today. God sees the fatigue and he sees the heaviness of heart. He sees the injustices and he also sees the lawlessness. He sees failed leadership and he sees good leadership and he sees flagging hope and exhaustion. He sees people straining against these forces that have come against us, and he hasn't forgotten you, and you need to know that. Number four, the story is about Jesus. Now, I want to tell you that Mark's version, surprisingly, does not say anything about Peter. Like, he doesn't tell Peter's part in the story. (laughs) Only Matthew does. Now, I have a theory about that. I would like to share with you my nerdy theory about that. Here it is. Uh, The earliest church historians and church fathers believed and taught that Mark was Peter's translator. And so what they taught was that uh, Peter, of course, he speaks very broken Greek, probably doesn't read it well at all. Uh, He speaks, he has a very coarse, unrefined northern Galilean Aramaic accent that the guys in the south make make fun of him for. And he needs a Greek translator when he goes and preaches to the Greeks. And the earliest church father tradition about this, about Mark's gospel, is that Peter is the source material for this gospel. Meaning that he got his uh, stories from Peter's sermons. Now, It is also, scholars also believe that Mark was first. Mark is the first gospel and the rest are kind of built on that one. So when you you look at Mark's gospel, I think Matthew was sitting there looking at it, reading it going, wait a minute, where's the story about Peter? No, 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 no. I want to tell the rest of the story. You guys have to know, this is the most hilarious thing ever. Now, why Peter would have left it out of his sermons, maybe out of embarrassment, maybe he's embarrassed from failing, I know I would be. Or maybe he's too humble to to sort of tell the story that he is the only other person in history who walked on water. I don't know. But Matthew, Matthew includes it. He's like, you have to know this. This is the funniest thing ever. I can imagine Matthew and the other, other apostles retelling that story over dinner hundreds of times and just howling in laughter. But the story, as much as Matthew wants to tell you about Peter... He wants to tell you Peter is the quintessential disciple. Peter is the guy. If you're going to follow Jesus, follow Peter as he follows Jesus because this is what it's like to be a sinful human being who's just blundering in discipleship, right? Blundering ahead. Be like Peter. But the story's not about him. The story is actually about Jesus. And it's actually a story that reveals what you and I need to know about the Savior, I want to tell you something that's, that's just true. Put this in the memory bank. Your story is not about how God fits into your life. <laughs> I, I've seen books that teach this. They're these Christian living books about how your story is all about how God fits into my journey. <laughs> your, your, your story... God doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about how he fits into your journey. He has invited you to come into his story. Your life is about how you fit into his salvation historical story. And this story is not about Peter, though it does reveal the character of Peter. It does reveal his faith. It is about Jesus. And what do we learn? What do we learn about Jesus? It's in Mark 650. Here's what Jesus said when he comes out like a ghost, like an apparition. And they're frightened to death. He says, take courage, ego me. 
Take courage, ego me. That's Greek. That's the same phrase that John in his gospel uses for the phrase, I am. Seven times John, Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, ego me. And so here is Jesus coming, walking out there, and yes, he wants them to know, I'm not a ghost. I'm, uh, that's a very superstitious belief, by the way. <laughs> he says, I'm not a ghost. It is me, it's Jesus, but the me, I, I am. I am the one, and the context affirms that interpretation because who else could walk on water? Who else ever has? Who else could do? No one expected Jesus to do this. So the I am is not only, not only does the I am see them, the I am is with them. He is there. He is there in the midst of what they're going through. And I just wonder how long, this is just educated imagination, uh, I just wonder how long Jesus stood there in the dark before he flipped the light on, right? <laughs> I just wonder, like, how long he watched them just straining and screaming and crying out for help, and for salvation, before he just revealed himself. Mark's gospel said he acted as if he was going further. There's another little twist in the story. Jesus was walking by the boat as if he was just going to pass them by and say, see you, see you on shore, if you make it. Matthew 14, 32 says this, and when they climbed into the boat, uh, that is Peter and Jesus, the wind immediately died down, and then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. I mean, man, you are the I am. Ego and me, he is. He's the one. And the thrust of this entire dilemma and the thrust of your dilemma is God revealing the glory of the Son of God. God revealing his son in the midst of whatever you are facing, whatever Sea of Galilee you find yourself working hard, exhausting yourself against. When Jesus reveals himself as the great I am, the only appropriate response is, yes, you are. Clearly you are the son of the living God. No one else could be. Number five, don't fear the rescue. Don't fear the rescue mission, the rescue team. The, the scripture says that when Jesus got out there, it uses a very particular word, they were, they were struck with terror. Now, instead of the, the exhausting work of just trying to row against the wind and the waves, now they're just kind of holding on to each other in dear life, just terrified. Great. The storm is going to kill us, and now God sends us a ghost to finish the job. And you know what it's like when you're exhausted and you can't see straight. You can't think straight. Your emotions are all over the place. And you see something and you go, that's going to kill me. I, I can't carry one more thing. My wife told me that yesterday. She's like, honey, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. But I don't feel like I can carry one more thing. And sometimes, sometimes what I've experienced, at least over the last six months, which has been, for me, a waking nightmare, a, just a waking nightmare, what I have experienced is the solution to whatever my diagnosis is sometimes is more scarier than my diagnosis. Like, the, 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 they give you the diagnosis, and, they, and the doctor says, hey, you're not going to die of this. But the next year is going to be pretty rough. And then you get in the middle of that year and you go, well, this, is, this feels like dying. <laughs> Look, it feels like the rescue is worse than your original situation. 
The doctor looks at me and says, hey, man, that's going to be, you're going to be out in 30 minutes. I've never had a patient ever um, who's ever had this problem, you know, the problem of losing their voice. I'm like, good, sweet. 30 minutes out of the surgery. I can't talk anymore for three, almost three months. I mean, it's just this, sometimes a solution that God provides for you in the midst of that thing is, feels more terrifying than the thing that you had to face. And if you've ever been there, you have needed this kind of faith. You have needed the kind of faith that just says, I'm not going to fear whatever rescue plan God has for me now. I'm not going to be afraid of that. God, God, if God has ever had to rescue you, saving you from the solution in, in addition to what was ailing you, then you know how these guys feel. And, by the way, you're a disciple. Because that's what discipleship is. Number six, there's no shame in a grown man crying. I'll tell you that from experience. There is no shame in a grown man crying. Now, I grew up where grown men didn't cry. As a matter of fact, to tell you, I'll tell you this. When I got home after that day when I threw my helmet down and I was crying and telling my dad, I got a whipping. In the old school in the South, they called that a whipping. Because my dad was like, you don't cry in front of other, other boys. I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> I mean, I was just raised in a house where grown men don't cry. When my dad's mom died, uh, Evelyn, beautiful, lady. She died of brain cancer. And, and I watched the EMTs try to revive her in my living room, and she was gone. That's the first time I ever saw my dad cry. And I remember standing in my bedroom, looking at my dad, crying his eyes out, and saying, what is wrong with you? Grown men don't cry, because that's how I was raised. But these guys do. <laughs> look, at, look at verse 28. He says, Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, I tell you, uh, tell me to come out on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, and things, so far, so good. He walked on the water and came toward Jesus, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he just began to sink. Can you imagine this feeling? Triumph to tragedy. And then he cried out, Lord, save me. There's no shame in crying out, God, I need, I need a little help here. I need, I need you to rescue me. Um, over the last six months for me, I, my prayer time has been an, an opportunity for me to kind of, well, not kind of, but really release my emotions to God. Uh, so I have gone through the gamut of, of emotions in prayer where there are times when I just fall under uh, complete silence because God's presence is so palpable. I mean, it's just so real. And every single thing that all of those attributes of God that we celebrated, that we celebrated uh, earlier at the beginning of the service, I just am aware that this holy, uh, omniscient, omnipotent God, this great and mighty powerful God is in my midst. And I can't say a word. I feel like John, just I want to fall on my face as though dead. And there are other times when my kids can hear me on the other side of my office door howling in laughter because God has just shown me something hilarious. And I'm just laughing and I'm just saying, thank you, God. Thank you for the joy of your presence. Thank you for the, for the, uh, the comedy, <laughs> that you, the, the joy that you give us in prayer and in these lessons that you teach us. And there are other times when I find myself weeping through my eyelids because my heart can't take it anymore, right? And then with the stuff in the culture, I find myself up late at night, sort of with anxiety, praying through anxiety for our world, for our church, for this community. 
I find myself getting up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and just kind of pacing around. And what I've, what I've started doing uh, is just I go for a walk first thing. Just get up, hit it, go for a walk, a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, and then get back. But usually when I'm out on that walk, I'm just crying my eyes out, just praying, just calling out to God. And God is teaching me this is what real men do. Real men call out for salvation. Real men stand in the gap for their country and their community and their nation and their family, and they call out for salvation to Jesus. And so we were on this little vacation, and, and I decided to go for an early morning walk, and everybody is just sleep up in the room, and I get down. There's this little cafe down there, and I decide I'm going to walk before coffee, right? right? So I'm going to walk before my latte. And uh, so I go out, and I walk, and I'm just praying, and I just, I, I'm overwhelmed. I just start crying out for the Lord's salvation, and I cried myself silly. And then I got back, and I, I went up to the guy to order my coffee, and he looked at me. He had his mask on, like he had this really cool, actually cool mask. And, but I could see the look in his eyes were like, dude, are you all right? Like, is everything, do I need to call someone for you? <laughs> and uh, I said, no, I'm good. And uh, so I got the coffee, and then I went back to the elevator door, and I was and I hit the button. I was going upstairs to get the kids to come down for breakfast. And I looked at myself in the mirror that was across from there. And I was like, wow, I look bad. I look like I've been through it. And God says, don't apologize. And don't avoid it. I've called you for this. I've called you for just this time to intercede for these people to intercede for our nation, to intercede for our country, to intercede for your family and your community. I've called you to do this. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who mourn. Have you been mourning over the last couple of weeks or the last couple of months? I'm sure you have. I know you have. And, and Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who feel poor in spirit. Do you feel like you don't have any solutions? No. Like, I could, I could post a Facebook uh, thing and word it very nicely, but I don't, I don't run an organization. The only organization I'm a part of that I know of that reconciles all races together is those who are reconciled at the cross. And I think we have the solution, by the way. I think that is the solution. But I felt very poor in spirit. I felt like I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell the folks in our community or the folks in the world. I felt poor in spirit. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who feel like they don't have any solutions right now because I'm the solution, Jesus says. Blessed are the meek and the merciful and those who cry out, Lord, save us. We need your salvation. And this is the faith. This is the faith that we're going to need in the coming days in the coming days in our culture, realizing that this too, this trouble, is also part of the plan. Realizing that nobody succeeds without risking. There's no faith without risk. There's no Christianity or discipleship without risk. Risking much for the kingdom of God. You want to walk, you got to get wet. A faith that feels abandoned at times. A faith that wonders where Jesus is at times. Like Jesus is nowhere to be found, but his eyes are still on you. He hasn't, he hasn't taken his eyes off of you. And a faith that reveals to the world who Jesus is in the midst of our suffering, revealing that he is the I am, the great son of the living God. And a faith that doesn't fear the solution. A faith that says, you know what, I, this is going to be hard. This is a hard course right now. But this is what God has for me. This is what God has for me. And I'm going to make it through. And a faith that is called to mourn with those who mourn. A faith that is called to mourn with those who mourn. 
as those who are poor in spirit. Will you pray with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Father in heaven, we are a church family, and we're back in our house, and it feels great to be together. And Father, as a church, we want to lift up our, our world. We want to lift up our nation. God, we know that they need you. We know that every single person in our community, in our nation, our world, they need to be reconciled to the one true God through Christ Jesus the Lord. And God, we pray for them. We pray for all of them. We, we ask that you would birth in their hearts, give them a desire to surrender to your gospel. Because you do. You do love them and you do have a wonderful plan for their life. And God, for every single person who is sitting here this morning and they are going through something and they don't know how to get through it and they're maybe afraid of the solution, would you just give them courage, encourage them right now? Would you just say to them and their heart, take courage, it is I. I am. I'm here. I haven't left you. I'm never going to leave you don't take your eyes off me because I haven't taken my eyes off of you. Will you just let them know that? In Jesus' mighty name, amen.